The human species is at a choice point. Is this going to be our evolutionary crash or evolutionary leap? My name is Gibraltar. No, 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 wait, no, hold on. I can't listen to this long <laughs> intro again. Are you serious? Oh my god, I can feel my youth escaping. Oh, ouch! Ouch! Okay. Hello, my name is Austin Badger, and I have had the pleasure of working with Gibran for nearly five years now. Yes, five years. And I am here with Lawrence. My name is Lawrence Bariner. I don't know how long I've had the pleasure of working with Gibran, but maybe it's also five years. Yes. Those days back at the <laughs> Institute, I think, was about five years ago. Amazing. Yeah. And so we are here to interview him. Yes, we've heard from so many amazing women on the podcast, um, amazing folks, but we want to hear a bit more about Gibran and about what his vision is and what his story is. So Lawrence and I jumped in to take the lead. (laughs) That's right. And from what I remember, part of the reason that the two of us were chosen with this, uh, what's the word, like a... Herculean task (laughs) is we have somehow the capacities to take all of the ideas and concepts and frames and help bring them into clarity. Yes, make it a little bit more accessible as the evolution of consciousness is not always that accessible. It's not? It doesn't make perfect sense to you guys? Yeah, see, that's why we're here. (laughs) So, Jabron, do you want to say anything before we get into these questions? Just how honored and thrilled I am to have you, your energies, your beauty, your goodness in my life, to be a witness to your journey. It, It is one of the loveliest aspects of this blessed, blessed work I get to do. And to say even further that we have gathered more than once as as a threesome to strategize and to think about how to make this work make sense and how to move it forward in a way that it is of greater service so that I truly do depend on you um, and very especially on Austin more more frequently just because of the nature of our partnership to, to define uh, what we're trying to do in the world. So I'm so grateful that we can give people an insider's view on that. Yes. Woo. Okay. <clears throat> so, as a storyteller, I love hearing when people begin talking about their personal stories. And I know I've heard from other people that there's a good amount of mystery around you. And so, we thought it would be really insightful to share three moments that you feel in your life have most defined you? Well, three. I usually say five, but uh, I didn't give him enough time to talk about himself. (laughs) (laughs) A low-key drag. (laughs) But um, I can, let me, because now I have to choose. Um, I can tell you that I was born in the island of Puerto Rico, and to the best of my memory, it was an idyllic childhood. It was perfect. It was beautiful. It was rural. I grew up in the middle of a sugarcane field. And 
I grew up in a household and a community that was full of love. Uh, we moved from Puerto Rico to the United States when I was 12 years old. And we moved to Western Massachusetts. And that's important because that is the age at which I became a minority. I became a person of color. And I did not like it. It was not a pleasant experience. It was a hard experience. And it's an experience that has defined the rest of my life. I have defined my life trying to make sense out of what it means to be looked at and treated as, as less than, right? Having that experience as a young man, as a, essentially a boy becoming a man, uh, can really mess with you. And so I, I, I grappled with that. Um, and I think that's key to making me who I am. Somewhere along that journey, early on enough, 15 or 16, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that politicized me. That gave uh, an important language, an important way that helped me think about the experience that I was having um, in a way that empowered me. Hmm. Uh, and so that that's a key, I think, part of my story. And when I tell my full story, I refer to that as, as a key awakening, a key awakening. If I had to fast forward and skip a couple of those awakenings, I would say that on September 11, 2004, without looking for it, without knowing what it was, without consciously seeking it, I um, was blessed with an esoteric, an ancient initiation, right? I received an ancient initiation from a tantric master. And that blew my heart wide open. Um, but I did not want to follow that path. I didn't want the trappings of that awakening. It looked weird to me. I was a Western-educated guy, kind of intellectual, um, from a Christian, charismatic. I think that's important. It was a Pentecostalist Catholic tradition. So as Pentecostal as you could get while you're Catholic, which is it's a very kind of embodied expression of worship. Um, so that didn't jive with uh, a yogic kind of tantric guru-centered path. Uh, and so I spent about two years of my life trying to get the fruits of that blessing without actually engaging it, without actually surrendering to it. Um, and I think that then, if I had to be fast here, I would say that two years after that, um, I managed to destroy my life, right? Uh, through my actions, through the way in which I allowed patriarchy to move through me. And uh, in that way, I, I lost it all because of my own personal feelings, because of my own kind of blind spots, because of the way I was walking in the world as an unconscious man. And in that process of, 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 of breaking, of losing everything, uh, uh, I had to surrender. And I had to, to say yes to God as God was showing herself to me at that point. Right? I was kind of hanging on to my own idea of the divine, and what I understood is like God had come to me in the gentlest, most beautiful, unrequested way. I chose not to listen. So she came to me with fierce <laughs> grace. And what happened is she took away things that I would not have been able to give up on my own. Mm. And it was after that that I went from activist, organizer, highly hyper-political, most of the time oppositional, into the world of facilitation. Um, 
number of things of that, that spirituality has evolved significantly since then. Um, it kind of moved down. Like if it was kind of very ascendant and towards the heavens over the years, it moved down, bringing me towards the earth, towards the holy feminine, towards ancestral traditions and shamanic practices and sacred medicines. Um, and that's kind of the spiritual practice that I'm dancing with right now. And I cannot finish this without saying that the birth of my son, who just turned eight years old uh, a month ago, was a a life-defining awakening and and also integral to um, to this lifetime of inquiry into what masculinity is uh, means to me and how I look at it. I look at it as a father. And I look at it as a mm. co-parent, and I look at it as 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 the father to to somebody that presents as a as a young man. Wow! Yeah. Wow! <laughs> so that was a very mind blowing and yet succinct version of your moments. I do want to say that you did five, even though we asked for three. So <laughs> as a facilitator, I don't really appreciate you deviated from our question, but I guess it's fine. We'll move through that. This, in case you have never been in space with Austin Badger, is what Austin Badger brings you. <laughs> and I it's brilliant. It's so brilliant. I this is it. what makes the partnership work. That's exactly right. Do I like it all the time? No, no. <laughs> do I appreciate it all the time? Yes, I do. I, most of the time. So I have gotten, I've had the pleasure of hearing this story, I mean, dozens of times, um, because I'm often present um, at facilitations, at gatherings that Gibran facilitates, and often he asks folks to tell their life stories in five minutes, which to some people is the most intimidating thing in the world. Um, and so being at all those retreats, one of the main events that I always go to with you is Evolutionary Leadership, hmm. um, which is the leadership program that we started. You actually hired me um, to help you launch that program. I think it was like February before it launched in June and we had nothing at all. And I needed to figure out how we're we going to get eight people to like a remote island to make this retreat happen. Um, and so that community has grown exponentially. I mean, there's like 60 people in the community. We're very deeply connected, um, in how the world that we want to create, even though everyone's doing their separate projects, there's this deep connection. And I remember when we first started working together, you made me promise that I would make sure that you didn't start a cult, which... Mm. Mm. <laughs> which can be difficult when you're bringing people together into community. It can just kind of fall in there. Yeah, it just happens. <laughs> and with all of this sort of not marketing around who you are, but sort of trying to package like what it is that you're bringing to the world, you always said to me, I am not a guru. I think of myself as an alchemist. And so my question to you is like, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to be an alchemist and not a guru? Wow, what a powerful question. Uh, I'm not sure if the origin of that question is correct. I think <laughs> you decided that I shouldn't start a call, but we can wrestle with that later. Um, the, <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> that's probably true. But, but the, that's a beautiful question. And I, I, I should say that evolutionary leadership remains to this day uh, the most beautiful thing I've done in the world, right? If, if kind of nurturing... Um, the development and growth of my own heart and my contribution, if being a father, being a parent, 
um, a partner, all of those things are kind of why I think I'm on the planet. In terms of, of a project out in the world, evolutionary re- leadership remains the most beautiful thing. And I'm glad you asked this question in that context. Uh, I have had a relationship, uh, a, a traditional relation, guru-disciple relationship. I have had a master, a spiritual master. And part of that surrender included accepting that, right? Being like, no, like we thought we shouldn't do this. This is bad. And then doing it anyway, <laughs> right? And so I know. I know what that is. I know what that feels like. And I know what it has done for me, even if it has evolved significantly over the years. Uh, so to the extent, I think that the first step uh, in this particular tradition that I'm in a, a part of, the initiation is a involves a transmission of energy in which the master kind of transmits their their state onto you and gives you allows you to experience a kind of wakefulness that is otherwise inaccessible in everyday life. Uh, and if we were to get into the esoteric of it all, in this particular tradition, it is called a kundalini awakening. Mm-hmm. The idea that there's a, a dormant energy at the base of each of our spines, at the base of our bodies, that unlocks, and then the, and then that snake begins to unwind and move up and through your chakras, right? And so, in direct relationship, in direct surrender to that master, as she goes on to guide that process for me, that would be a guru-disciple relationship. Uh, I do believe that we all have a transmission, that there is a, that we hold a state that we transmit unto others. And you know that, you feel it when the happiest person walks into the room, as well as when the angriest person or the saddest person walks into the room, we feel the way the room is impacted. And I think that my work in the world um, is strengthened by my understanding of transmission. Right. However, what I'm intending to do with transmitting a certain and cultivated energy is unlock uh, not only the potential in each of the individuals, but support the unlocking of a collective field. Mm. Right. So that so that what you're awakening to is not just what is possible within yourself, but what is a life between us. And what is happening between us. That is, that is the medicine that I am intentionally trying to bring to every space that I'm in, including by the way, and most of the time, because this is all sounding so spiritual and esoteric, most of the time in highly strategic contexts, right? In contexts where leaders are coming together to contend with some of the deepest and biggest challenges of our time. So I don't want to think this is all yoga retreat stuff, right? This is, this is deep work in the world. And I, my goal then becomes, how do I support the opening of this field, or this field becoming aware of itself because it already is strongly enough that I can actually go away? I don't have to stay around for the field to continue to inform its own development as well as of the, the development of the individuals that are starting that are standing together within it. Does that help yes, answer the question? I appreciate that. Yeah. Wow. So much clarity. You know. I do a lot of interviewing, and I know that you learn things every time, but hearing you say that in response to that particular question about guru versus alchemist, I'm like learning, Mm. seeing in a new way. So feeling super excited that you touched on the collective field, and we're going to come back to that 
in just a second. But quick uh, pit stop at Tony Robbins. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Yes. And this is going to get us, I think, to the collective. Yeah. But you have said before that you want to be the Tony Robbins of connection. And so first question is like, who is Tony Robbins to you? Why is he that amazing? (laughs) Yeah, let's start there. Great, great. So Tony Robbins, let's talk a little bit about him and acknowledge that uh, some not so pretty things have come out about him recently. Um, And we don't know uh, what's what, but I just want to name that patriarchy has likely shown up there as well as I think is uh, the likelihood uh, with any um, any man that wields power. Uh, so I just want to acknowledge that, uh, particularly given my own commitment to address the way patriarchy has shown up in my life and in my work. Uh, Tony Robbins is interesting to me because my first interactions with him and the idea of him was as the infomercial guy selling snake oil really and truly and I, to this day remember um to the guy that is that is that is even that is my best friend now like he's been my best friend for 25 years uh kind of saying tony robbins in a joke to me like as kind of in a dismissive kind of joke um and so that that was my attitude about him um over the years i started to listen to to people that i respect including i'm influenced by the Tim Ferriss podcast, I think that's a really good podcast. Again, like Tony Robbins and like many other people I make allusion to, still kind of bro-ish, kind of guy stuff. But um, I'm not one to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like there's stuff I'm learning from these guys that I get to translate and bring forward to the communities that I get to swim in. And I think that's one of the roles I play. Um, but because Tim Ferriss... Vouched uh, for Tony Robbins, I gave Tony Robbins another chance. And I've gone to two of his events, Unleash the Power Within and Day with Destiny. And what I like about that work is that it's very, very tool oriented, um, right? There's a lot of practices that you can take from it, as well as it generates, uh, it's very state oriented. It understands that if we attain certain states, um, we become more malleable, and that could obviously be uh, that's a that's a dangerous word to use. But I'm thinking about it as malleable to ourselves, right? If I am in a in an expanded state, uh, I can see new possibilities that I, if I am careful and smart, I can then integrate into my my more regular or normal state of being. Um, and I see the way Tony Robbins has popularized personal development, the way he has popularized personal growth, the way he has popularized even achievement, right? And uh, I think a lot of what he does is he sells you achievement on the front end. And if you successfully work with him, you uh, you understand the distinction between the science of a, of achievement and the art of fulfillment, right? So the, the, the kind of what it means to build up, to, to create a life that is rich and full because you're a beautiful human being, because you're generous, because you're growing, because you're making contribution, not because you're winning at every game that you're playing. Mm. But I think he comes in as common win, right? Why? That, that was maybe a little much Tony Robbins, but I'll say this to answer your question. And I'll even talk about, I'll talk about Tony Robbins and I'll talk about Michael Pollan, who are, you couldn't have more different guys from each other. 
So Michael Pollan hmm. just wrote an amazing book called How to Change Your Mind. And it's a book about the use of psychedelic medicines, right, for personal transformation. The reason why I bring him up is because there's something parallel between them hmm. that is certainly generational. I think it's also being men, it's also being white guys with power and influence and all of these things. Um, but it is as beautiful as their work is, is still focused on the development of the individual, right? Take medicine and you will grow. Take medicine and you'll be able to deal with your trauma. That is uh, a Michael Pollan kind of take. Or do these practices, visualize, say your incantations, practice ongoing generosity, and you will achieve all your dreams, as say Tony Robbins. All of these things are actually true. But they are limited by the fact that they focus so much on the personal development of the individual. I will take it one step further and I say even the healing discourse that we uh, that we are privy to in the spaces that we're swimming in can easily fall into my healing. What I need is my story is oh I get triggered when you say this. Like it's all uh, it all kind of feeds into what Professor John Powell has referred to as the European Enlightenment Project of the Isolated Self. The idea that the individual is the apex of humanity and of our humanness. And that is what a culture has fed us. Every single one of us, like it or not, are suffering from postmodern narcissism, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we engage these practices, consciously or not, they become about us. And when I say I want to be the Tony Robbins self-connection, what I mean is, it's kind of popularizing, making easily accessible, right? Because the, the the spaces of collective consciousness are beautiful, are the most powerful spaces that I'm in, and they can be quite rarefied, right? And what I'm interested in doing is kind of spreading the gospel of the collective. It's kind of alchemizing. It's making this medicine of when we turn towards each other, these things that we want to achieve as individuals either become less important or can actually be achieved, right? Mm. Because we have reclaimed what is central to being human, mm. which is to be together. Mm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so in that, you're building towards more... You talked about spread just now, like when people spread the gospel, you know, I know at least you and I have Christian roots. Um, Austin, I don't know if you have Christian. I I was a born again Christian for a few years with the purity ring and everything. Wow. Oh yeah. That's a whole nother story. Okay. So (laughs) some of, some of. Amazing. I just learned this after five years. Brilliant. (laughs) So. There's this shared connection we have with the spreading of things. Yeah. And it's possible that the spreading of things is not good. <laughs> Correct. Yes, thank you for saying that. <clears throat> and my sense of your work is not at all the same. It's not the same type of spreading. Correct. And what you're trying to spread, I think, is about pointing people to each other. Correct. When, at least in my experience, lots of Christianity was about turning people away from each other and towards God. 
And sometimes that meant hating other people. <clears throat> so it seems pretty clear you're not going in that direction. Um, but this thing that you are moving towards, trying to share, I've heard you term as the evolution of consciousness. So collective consciousness, us turning towards each other, like if you had to boil down yep. what it is you're trying to not just spread, I feel like you've said that already, like you're trying to get people to connect with each other, but what does it mean to evolve consciousness? You got it. I'm glad to talk about this and thank you for that. In a very succinct way. Okay. That's why you're here to help me. Maybe (laughs) kick me. If you hear a kick, it's Austin. Um, Modernity, which is what we're leaving behind and what leaves us with extractive industrialization and ecocide, right? It's all about scale. It's all about making things big. It's about taking the best thing and making sure everybody gets it and identifying what that thing is, right? So the kind of gospel spreading that you're talking about could be very aligned with the spreading of American capitalism or of even Soviet communism, right? It's all Mm. about this is the answer. Let's make it big. Let's make sure everybody gets it because then we'll all win. So I appreciate the distinction that you're making. What I'm trying to respond to is a world historical moment that is defined by a crisis of meaning and a crisis of connection. What I understand by crisis of meaning is we have lost access to the great narratives that tell us uh, how we got here and why are we here. What the old traditions were offering to us seems to have shaken down to pieces under the auspices of like a materialist modernity, right? What materialist modernity seems to offer us seems to be devoid of spirit and, and, and meet all of those kind of archetypal human needs that we have that's been lost. And in losing that, you lose, a, you enter a crisis of connection. We're literally the most affluent society that has ever walked the earth, right? The least needy in terms of money and wealth is the most isolated, the most alienated, the most depressed, the most anxious, right? So we don't know, we have, we have kind of given up on the, the core ancestral wisdom that has been handed to us for sake of something else. So when I say, uh, spread it, I don't mean I want everybody to do the same thing at the same time. That's not what I mean. It's to the extent that I can be one of the many people that are helping people remember what it's like to be together in a way that helps us grow. I want to do that. I want to do that. And in a, in a way that is ancestral, that is something that has always been or always was. But you asked me about evolution, right? And so it's very easy to speak about ancestral practices and get caught in a romantic idea of returning to the tribe. Right of return and and, and and as if, as if everything that we've done up to this point was a mistake, and I don't think it's true. I, I actually like being an individual. I think it's a good thing. I like having a hyper developed inner world. I think it can be a trap, like everything good can be a trap. But I like the development of the Western individual, and I like being part of that game. Um, what I'm talking about then is an evolution that integrates and includes the best of what came before 
as well as the best of what we're leaving behind, right? And my thought is, and it's not just my thought, I'm part of a broad community of thinkers that, that believe and understand that that is in the direction of a different sense of we. It kind of decenters the sense of the hyper-individualistic sense of self and opens it up so that when I think I am, I'm also thinking we are. I think it's important to make one more distinction because those of us young ones, those of us <laughs> that grew up in, in the middle of the Cold War, we were taught a modernist story of it's either the collective, a Soviet collective, where the individual desire and need is sacrificed for sake of the whole and for sake of equality, or it's a hyper-individualistic world that the American empire is pushing forward, right? Where all freedom is all, the only way to attain freedom is by upholding the individual as the apex of humanity. The we space that I'm talking about, the evolution that I'm talking about is one in which each one of us as individuals is greater, is more free, is more fully expressed within a space of connection that gives us all life. Does that make more sense? Yes. It does. Totally. Yeah. And for anyone that wants a little more knowledge for there will be a, a course coming out eventually. That's right. We're developing that. Evolve your own consciousness, become an active participant in evolving your own consciousness. We'll get to hear more about it. Um, but I loved the way that you I love the way you explain the evolution of consciousness where in integrating the things that you originally move away from. And it makes me think a bit about your relationship to movement fundamentalism, which anyone that listens to this podcast regularly has deep knowledge of how you feel about <laughs> movement fundamentalism. Um, and I don't know if you'd like to define what that is, yes. uh, but go ahead. I, well, I guess my you could define what it is, but my two questions for you are... Um, how, when you're thinking about evolution and evolving the way you think about things, where do you feel like you're in the process mm. of that, your relationship to movement fundamentalism? Because, I mean, it's something that you must come into contact with all of the time in your work. Um, and then I'd love, well, let's just start with that. Yeah, yeah. Where do you feel like you're at? With Thank that? you so much for asking me that question. Um, and quite honestly, I can't think of too many more things. I can think of maybe one thing that would be more, more that would invite more openness uh, and vulnerability for me than that one right now. Because of, I am in a very beautiful actually space in relationship to that, and it's not where I've been. Um, so I define. I've been. I've been lately interchanging the terms movement fundamentalism and wokeness together. So, moment fundamentalism is, was my word for, for wokeness, which is this, um, this way of working for justice that has as key characteristics, uh, being very dogmatic, uh, coming with a lot of judgment, uh, and self-righteousness. It wants to kind of lay down a very rigid set of inter of ways to interact. This is kind of in order to interact as woke people, 
these are the rules. This is the order of things. If you are this race and this color, you get to speak first. And if you're this other one, you must speak last. And you don't get to have that thought or that idea. You don't get to contribute in that way. And whatever you say must be perfect because of the body uh, uh, and gender that you inhabit. And and so it kind of predefines human interaction. Um, it's also defined by the the possibility of exile. The possibility of exile is constantly hanging out there. So I actually believe that movement fundamentalism, wokeness, um, comes out of a deep yearning for connection, that we have a crisis of connection, and we have an authentic, a beautiful and authentic longing for justice. But because we are not practiced in the way, in the ancestral ways of being together in community, we actually build these communities based on on abstraction, on belief and dogma that brings us together, but that togetherness is quite brittle. It can break at any time. People are scared when they are in it. They're scared of saying the wrong thing. People feel people perform when they're in it. They they like gotta send flares. They gotta say the words. Uh, white supremacy or heteronormativity or patriarchy or like capitalism and like you gotta throw those throw those flares up in this up into the sky to signal to people i'm in i'm in i belong here please don't kick me out seriously 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 right uh and so that energy even though the analysis is often correct um that energy takes away its power mm-hmm. and it makes for miserable and scarce spaces that are high in anxiety um having been Having come into so I so let me pause before I tell you the story of it because I think it's important to say I have been in a deeply passionate reactive reactive relationship to that over the last number of years all I have known is I don't want this I don't want to be a part of this please keep me away from this I don't want people around me that talk like this. Which is a big problem for somebody that still makes most of their income by being in social movement spaces, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it leads to it leads to inner suffering, and it leads to my being in conflict with the way in the way the places in which my space is held, uh, because I'm constantly afraid that somebody's going to throw this out into this room and kill the possibility that we have of coming together in a beautiful way. Now, thankfully, this actually happens way less hmm. than I fear it happening. But I'm continually grappling with it, right? And if somebody shows me a little sign of it, I like immediately have like put them into a corner, into like a little woke corner. And I'm like, oh, well, I really actually, I'm not going to have to facilitate this, but I actually don't like you that much because you're too woke for me. Like, it, 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 it limits what I can bring with my heart. Hmm. It limits my work. Um, and it has felt like a trap. And what I have, I have been grappling with it over years, years, literally. And over the last couple of months, I've had a couple of beautiful, beautiful, of sometimes difficult spiritual experiences um, in which I have been in community and I have been able to see how my own reaction to this 
is two things. Is an exact mirror of the thing I'm critiquing, right? <laughs> so that I have been self-righteous, judgmental, wanting to exile people that I have deemed to be self-righteous, judgmental, <laughs> and wanting to exile. So it's kind of meta and kind of ridiculous, right? Yeah. So I was able to to see that, and I could I could see that before with my eyes, but not feel it in my body. Uh, and then the other one is to really understand. Um, that that's my own trauma. Mm. That when I moved, when my family mm. moved from Puerto Rico to the mainland United States, we came into an intentional, when I say intentional, I always clarify, it wasn't like a geographic community, but it was a community that was in covenant with itself to live a certain way, a certain Christian, Catholic, charismatic way. It mirrored the evangelical movements, except that it was uh, Catholic and it was working class Puerto Rican people trying to do their best to support each other in bringing up their families. And, and a constant refrain is like, we are in the world, but not of this world, right? Which, which is literally a mirror of what you get from this movement. This I'm woke, like I'm here, but I'm not of this. I live and swim capitalism, but I'm not it. I'm striving to not be it. And that possibility of exile the possibility of being deemed as bad, the desire to be good and accepted and a full member of my community um, was uh, that 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 was out that tension was always there. So where there were parts of myself, integral part of myself, that didn't match that, or possibilities for myself, explorations, ideas, thoughts that didn't fit what this community held. I didn't have the tools. I was a boy, right? To kind of make, to make sense of that. And so that's where the trauma comes in. The trauma comes in when you experience a heartache or a pain or an assault on who and how you are, intentional or not, right? That you can't quite handle, right? And so what I've discovered and uncovered through sacred ceremony work uh, and in relationship with actually members of the evolutionary leadership community very recently, hmm. Um, through doing, through having like Maureen walk me through the work, um, by holding her and actually, actually being the holder of ceremony space, which is really interesting because you think when you're holding the ceremony space, you're supporting somebody else's healing, right? But the fact is that the only way to hold that role is if you're open to be healed yourself. Like over the last little bit of time, I have felt that energy unlocking and I can already tell you, like my compassion is greater. My heart is softer. My sense of possibility, um, more beautiful. I don't feel trapped in the same way. I feel more nimble. I'm free and I feel, and I feel more capable of helping others through it. So the, the question is, is timely and my moment in this process is young. So I also want to say, right? And for anybody that's going to have working through trauma, right? Like you see the light and you might think that healing is done faster than it is. Mm. So I ask for your forgiveness, the two of you and whoever's listening ahead of time, should I revert to that practice response? Oh, I love hearing about this evolution of the way that you're thinking about it. Um, it's been pretty funny over the past couple of years, uh, hearing you before you go into a space to facilitate something. Sometimes you'll start out and you'll be like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Their reactions, they might think this. And at the end of everything that you facilitate, when I talk to you afterwards, you're 
heart is always so open. You're like, oh, it was nothing like I imagined it. And I've heard this happen like dozens of times. I can't even listen to you when you say, you're like, oh yeah, they have all these thoughts. I'm like, no, you're putting those thoughts on them. Like, it's great. It's always magical. Um, so I love that. Yeah. yeah. And like, that's what trauma does. That's it. Like the experience of trauma makes you, like it causes you to be in some contorted shape. And then you assume that the world is making you or gonna make you hold that shape. Yes. And it's actually not like one, you have no idea. <laughs> and two, if there is the possibility that it's gonna happen, it's like very small. Yeah. It's like tiny. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. It's true. I mean, wokeness is pretty popular, so it does show up. But I think I, I learned to manage it. I learned mm. to handle it. True. Yeah. I, I stay I stay open. But but there are other forms of trauma that people have experienced at, at young ages that are unlikely to happen again so i think it's an important it's an important distinction to make yeah yeah, yeah. um we would like to segue into something completely different you just got back from burning man wow <laughs> how was that experience wow it, it was epic it was glorious it was beautiful i think of uh of Burning Man as an intersection of the sacred and the profane. I think about it as one of the most important and biggest rituals that are available to the affluent Western human. Mm. Um, I think of a place of a place that has an incredible amount of, of, of contradictions and limitations, um, but nevertheless, a place that I return from more committed to being a part of. Um, it's, uh, it's what uh, some philosophers have called a temporary autonomous zone, right? And the idea of a temporary autonomous zone is a space where we can coexist under a different set of rules. That space does not have to be permanent, right? It doesn't have to be uh, the utopia that you build into the future, but the practice and the experience of yourself and of each other under a different set of rules um, animates uh, your belief in its possibility, and therefore influences your capacity to approach it in what we call in Bernard talk the default world in the in the work that we're doing every day. I think about as somebody that is committed to to journey work and to ceremony work, it is a journey in every way. Um, it is a, a space that where you will be inevitably tested. It is it is uncomfortable, right? It is hot. It is the desert. Um, your body gets tested. Uh, it is also a place in which your senses explode, right? Um, I'll say a couple of things about it. I, I, it, it has a, a different economy. It's a gift economy. You can only give there. It is held together by ten beautiful principles that we can that we can put in the show notes. Um, one of which is radical self-expression, right? Um, it has a different set of sexual norms, a sexually positive space, which I think is really important in a in a culture where um, where that that's coming under threat, like what that looks like and what that feels like. Um, I will say uh, something important, which is you know your Burning Man experience is defined by who you go with, and the vast majority of people go with camps. And most of these camps have a theme and an offer, or many of them have a theme and an offering. And my camp is called Keviva. And it's been held together by, by a number. It, it, it centers 
um, you know, women of color, trans and queer people of color. So I think the only one of those attributes that I that I meet is being a, a, of color. Um, I'm a cisgender, hetero male. Um, so I, I'm glad to be one of the exceptions that the camp makes. Um, and this part, over the last number of years has been held by, by my dear friend, um, many people, but I think Fabiana Rodriguez, the, uh, the uh, movement artist, um, a true prophetic voice of our time, um, has really put in a lot of energy to keep it together. And I, and I share this to say uh, one of the most glaring problems with Burning Man, and I, I wanted to start by saying how glorious it was and how committed I am to it, is that... Uh, that radical inclusion is one of its 10 principles. And it's about 2% black, for example, right? <laughs> and so, like, it is, it is infuriating, right, that any subset of humans can pretend to build utopia and not include people of color. I mean, how how is that possible, right? And, and, and over the years of these conversations happen with them, they go to this... This, this liberal argument of it's, it's not a political space, right? And I think about this a lot when it comes to, um, I might go, I, you guys might have to rein me in, but I'm going to say this. Uh, I've been thinking about liberalism, and by that I don't mean being like a liberal versus a conservative. I mean about the liberal democratic tradition. And I've been thinking about it because it's at risk, because everybody's an absolutist now. The people that stand for justice and the people that are reactionary, everybody's every political decision is absolute. So if you don't believe in this thing, um, you are morally corrupt, you're evil, you're racist, right? Or the opposite, right? You don't believe in your country, you're unpatriotic, um, you want white people to be erased, right? And so that kind of polarization makes is destructive to liberal democracy, the possibility of liberal liberal democracy, where ideas have to be contested, right? I'm bringing this up because I want to rescue liberal democracy, and I'll tell you back to Burning Man, I want to rescue liberal democracy. But I also understand as I read the texts that it still centers and assumes whiteness, right? It has to assume a norm. This is what it means to be a human being, right? And so when we talk about safeguarding liberal democracy, we ignore the gender and racial composition of the United States Senate. That let us now have a good debate between conservative and liberal in this kind of liberal democratic way, right? But it, but the foundations of it are not questioned. And I feel like that's what happens with Burning Man, right? You say, well, no, we mean radical inclusion, but a bunch of assumptions about mm. what that means are not questioned. Mm. And the very questioning of them feels like a threat to the system. Right? So the system throws out antibodies. These are all like, Obama voting liberals, right? You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. they, they, they would say there's no reason voting my body, right? They would say, they would say all of that, uh, but they just don't want the game messed with. Yeah. Um, so, so we had an action, a Burning Man, in which, and, and I think as far as we know, one of the first ever, if potentially the first ever. And we brought together people of color and allies, and, and not just people of color. Uh, we had powerful, powerful death contingent join us. Mm. And the idea was uh, radical inclusion must mean radical inclusion. <laughs> and it included sending over the effort to hand over a petition to board members of Burning Man on a, ma- a march through the playa with, with uh, people wearing their butterfly wings mm. and... 
um, a huge, beautiful Black Lives Matter or one of the art vehicles, right? And it was it was a very, very powerful, powerful moment in which not only were we demanding radical inclusion, but we were making a petition, including a number of very clear demands, you know, including, hey, basic, get your board and your staff a racial inclusion training so that you can understand what we're talking about here, right? Um, support the people of color that are, Kind of do making this happen, like that are that are breaking through impossible barriers to get here. So, I'll finish with a very with a personal anecdote of like because I feel like I have. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you two stories, and and I feel like I have worked through a lot of my own kind of racial trauma. I mean, it's it shows up, right? But I'm not somebody. I mean, many people in our spaces, people of color that are like, yeah, I just, I, I need a safe space. I don't need to be in a white space right now. I need to, to express myself in this way. And, and I think that's beautiful and important and necessary. I don't often feel that need. I can be, I can, you know, I facilitate white spaces. I don't, it's not. But like, I would go to, I mean, this is endless music everywhere, right? But very little music that would make me groove, right? Mm. And then I would go to the set. I would like literally be just under the magical influence of the playa, wanting to move my body mm. and seeking the center of a dance space that I know exactly where to find in the musical spaces that are that are culturally familiar to me, and just not finding and barely finding. That kind of collective vibration that 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 are that are more common mm. to different kinds of dance spaces that I'm a part of, right? So that often felt like a loss to me. It often felt like a loss to me. Um, and in another moment, we went. I went. Um, I'm not gonna say her name, but I'm gonna take permission to tell to tell this story. I went um, with a beautiful woman of color to a goddess temple, you know, and. She was in full Burning Man garb, you know, and and one of these goddesses that was holding the space came out, and we were still a little early, and she asked the other two white women that were there if they wanted to be goddesses, and it was almost like it, it, I I truly believe that she wasn't even saying no, not her because she's black. She literally couldn't see her. Mm. She didn't know how to cut, you know. She didn't yeah. know how to deal with her with with her beautiful, gorgeous, goddess human existence. Wow. It didn't exist in her in her framework, right? She's probably never been around people of color, right? And, yeah. and, and, and I mean, it was devastating. Yeah. It was a devastating thing. And so yeah. there are people that are overcoming that because they know that something sacred is happening in this space. Mm. And those people need to be supported by this organization, right? They don't need, right? It's like they need to be like, you are a treasure here. You putting your name on the line to bring people here that could experience things like that. It's a big deal. You helping to create a space that holds them so that they can be here when that possibility exists. Not just anywhere, because when you're out in a default world, you expect that. We all know how to kind of move it sucks, but we know how to do it. But here you are in your moment of glorious self-expression. Um, and that and that possibility exists. And so it's extra painful when your heart is that wide open. And so I honor 
the people of color that keep going back because they know something special is happening. And I honor even more so the people of color that bring other people of color in. And I help to hold them. Hmm. And uh, I I really loved stepping into that role um, as, as somebody that facilitates, as somebody that can hold ceremonial space. I was able to, to provide that for a camp that provided all kinds of things for me, by the way, hmm. including building out an impossible by building out an impossible living structure for all of us, right? In an impossible mm-hmm. space. Like, I wasn't part of any of that. I'm on the East mm-hmm. Coast, right? So it's a give and take where we're all doing different things. Um, but it is, it is magnificent. It is not absent contradiction, but nothing that we do ever will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think, I'm just a couple of days out, but I think I'm starting to be ready to call myself a burner two times soon. Whoa. <laughs> nice. Wild. Hmm. So Burning Man has some foundations that uh, you're questioning, other people are questioning, some of these fundamental assumptions. Um, and that's a space that was not created by a diverse group. Um you create a lot of spaces. And so when you're creating spaces, you sometimes, or not sometimes, I would say you always come in with different sets of assumptions. Um, And I think the connection I'm making or wanting to make here is to the Better Men Project. Mm -hmm. And my experience of Spaces where my identity, you know, I'm a queer, black, cisgendered man. Spaces that didn't include my identity from the beginning really struggle when they're challenged Mm -hmm. to include me. Mm -hmm. Spaces that you make that I have experienced don't struggle to include me. Mm -hmm. And the Better Men Project, which you you have started and are running... Um, I feel like it's some sort of mix. Yes. Like the idea of masculinity or not even masculinity, like the idea of being a male, of being a man, those foundations are not foundations that I feel resonate widely. They resonate for a particular set of people who have been structured to believe that they are men. But like, if you really look at what being a man is, doesn't resonate with lots of people. But this Better Men Project space that you're making, I feel, brings in some different sets of assumptions. And so I'm curious, one, what the Better Men Project is for you, like, or just what is it? Like, how would, how, how do you define it? And what are you trying to do there? I know we've had conversations or at least, um, bounced ideas around or like, is what was that that article that Iraq shared? Is masculinity itself is like is masculinity terrorism? Yeah, 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 Ooh. yeah. And so you have this project called the Better Men Project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 
dealing with questions like, is masculinity terrorism? Right. So it's fascinating that you can create a space that holds things like that. Yeah. I'm just curious. We wanted to hear you talk. Thank you. Thank you about, for asking. Thank yeah. you for asking. And I want to answer it by saying of all the things we've said, we've spoken of, this is the, this is maybe the most open one. Like I'm, I'm really intrigued by what, by what you guys might, might have to teach me here or help mm. me think about. Um, I do feel compelled to take one kind of quick step back talking mm. about spaces because I don't think when I imagine, when I kind of write out my vision for myself, my intention, what I'm trying to do in the world, one of the things I write pretty early on is that this is the, that my life is a platform building project and that it includes bringing people together, uh, both virtually and congregationally. And what I mean congregationally is in the flesh, as people in, in groups. And, and the reason why I go back to saying that is you don't need 80,000 people mm. to have a Burning Man experience, mm. right? And one of my hopes is that by continuing to sharpen my capacity to convene, I will be able to join with others, right, who will be able to create such similar large-scale rituals, nothing necessarily like I did, that that might operate under a different set of premises. So bringing people together at whatever scale, whether there is 24 people at an evolutionary leadership workshop or a couple hundred people at some of the bigger companies that I do, or partnering with others to bring thousands together under a different set of premises are parts are part of my vision. So just and when mm. you say like the Tony Robbins of connection. He had 10,000 people on Unleashed Power within 5,000 people a day with Destiny. I would not want to get trapped in the idea like scale is what makes something powerful. So if that's ever there, I want to check it. But there is something to large numbers that garners energy in a way that I'm interested in being a part of. So rewind to that just yeah. because you guys talked about starting in space as I'm burning man and all of that. Betterment project. So yeah. let's, let's start as, as real uh, as I can get here, which is it's a very personal project. And I think about it as my own work of atonement. Right? In my life, as a male, as a man, I have hurt women. Um, I'm sure that I've used patriarchy to hurt men too. I'm sure that patriarchal conditioning has been negative to me. And I'm certain that at earlier stages of my development that it's been ex extra painful for queer men, guaranteed, mm. right? And the biggest personal failings in my life, the, 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 my worst moments as a human being um, have implied mistakes in relationship to women. And I want to devote my lifetime to atoning for that. And so that's the first premise. The second one is that I am aware that there's a very, that I in my life, in my first effort, my first super conscious effort to address patriarchy within myself after failing as a man in the most terrible of ways uh, meant as it means for many men that are trying to become conscious turning down my masculinity 
So what I did was I made masculinity and patriarchy the same thing. To me, they're those two things, especially masculine sexuality, were one and the same. And so what I tried to do was to be good, to be conscious, to be righteous by being less masculine. And I see it happen all the time. I see it happen all the time. I see men just kind of just trying to turn it off in order to be good guys. And so what I've learned over the years is that patriarchy and masculinity are not the same thing. That there's something called toxic masculinity, which is how patriarchy is manifest. And there is such a thing as conscious masculinity. Masculinity is something that I'm not saying that that every male-identified individual has it, right? But that many of us do. That many of us has have a masculine energy, right? I, I've been in beautiful, awesome conversation with trans men that, that, that in, in a beautiful way kind of illustrate this even more, right? Uh, by having a, a deeper and broader experience. Uh, but I, but I, but certainly with my friends and certainly often with young boys and young men, right? That there is something masculine that can be harnessed for the good, that needs, certainly needs to be harnessed. And in fact, when it is not harnessed, it is terribly dangerous and, and damaging, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is why it, might, it is my belief that we had initiation rituals uh, and why we're suffering so much from not having them. So part of what I want to do with the Better Man Project is atone, is um, rescue, Conscious masculinity by helping to define it. What I have struggled with is what is the circle, what is the pool that I'm going to work with in doing that? Mm. Um, because I do, because there's so many segments to it. And I do think it is important for cisgender heteroidentified men um, to talk as safely as possible. Um, about their relationships with women specifically, right? So across genders with probably, and this is all where, where I'm young in all of this, you know, trying to figure it out, probably with uh, their cis- cisgender heteroidentified partners, right? And what I want to do is make sure that there's a space to explore conscious masculinity within those, within that, those constraints without it feeling like I am, um, excluding your wisdom or, mm. or the wisdom of somebody in the group uh, just had a conversation with me about the sort of gender nonconformity and about how they were in a, in a moment in their path where they want to explore that and where uh, patriarchy gets in the way of that exploration. Man, I think that is an awesome conversation for any man to be a part of, right? But and in a space in in a kind of limited time, limited kind of set of constraints perspective, it seems like one that is not applicable hmm. to everybody there, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you make it possible? Like right? how do you make it possible for since heteroidentified men to talk about homoeroticism, hmm. right? Without them fully identifying as queer or, or ever identifying hmm. as queer, but knowing that that is part of being men together, right? Hmm. What's the safest space hmm. for those conversations? That's what I'm trying to sort out, and that's what I could certainly use help with, particularly 
from people that are non-dogmatic mm. that understand that that not everybody fits these qualifications, but a lot of us still do. Mm. And it is good for us to have this space to wrestle with it. Right. I mean, I think when you first started the Better Men Project, you were specifically only wanting to target um, heterosexual, heterosexual cisgender men. And you just... In committed relationships. In committed relationships. Yeah. Yes, it was very detailed. Yeah. But then you just had this influx of interest from people that don't identify with those labels. And not only was there interest, but there was such a wealth of knowledge... I mean, that you like you, you've been in conversation with trans men, as you just said, where you've learned so much. So it's like you don't want to close those spaces, but you also want to like it. it's as you said, like the the group is shifting and you're trying to figure out. I mean, I don't think that you feel comfortable being at the center or a teacher in a community of people that you don't necessarily un, you, you don't understand the struggles of a trans man. You That's don't right. understand. Or a queer man. Yeah. So yeah. how does that shape or a space need to shift? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a very real question. It's a very real question that I'm in. And uh, I think I, I what I've done so far is continue to speak from my experience, my eye experience. I'm trying to be welcoming as possible and continuing to speak from my eye experience, which is that embodied in this way, cis-hetero hmm. uh, dude um, that has made mistakes and wants to make up for them. Mm. Yeah. I was having a conversation with someone the other day and you know, I'm working on this post-patriarchal time travel project. And I guess I should say that is that particular project is my project that came out of evolutionary leadership. So this space I'm trying to create where people can travel to post-patriarchy futures. I imagined was for men. But as I put my one pager out to people in community, there've been a lot of folks who don't identify as men who are like, I totally want to be a part of this. So it seems super parallel. And when I went to talk to someone about how, um, how to do that inclusion, it was someone in the EL community I can't remember who it was, and I don't want to misquote, but basically they said it's really possible to make it very clear what the intention of the space is. And as long as you're clear to people who don't identify with the center of that, that they are not going to be centered in it, there are still people who would opt in to bring their wisdom and... All that's needed is to make sure that they have their own space to process what happened in the other space. Right. That's beautiful. And so there's like a both and thing there Mm -hmm. that I'm thinking in this moment, like, oh, I wonder what would happen if on the next, this isn't an ask. I'm just wondering, like, if on the next Better Men call, there was an opportunity for the queer men to gather and notice or just get together and talk about what we noticed in the bigger space and then offer that as something that's actually needed for you to get what you want from this original vision of, what was it, cisgender, heteronormative, partnered yeah. men. Yeah, 
I like it. I think that's something to play with. I appreciate it. And it's, it's a conversation that I will stay in. Um, and again, I, I think what matters the most to me is the men that I share an experience with um, have a space to learn together. And everybody else is also welcome, right? As long as that, as long as that can be protected, and as long as the the conversation is is anchoring that experience, because in some ways, um, we are the biggest problem and the most dangerous. Mm. So we need to be we need to be dealt with. <laughs> we need to deal with ourselves. Yeah. Facts. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. And I love. I mean, I sit in. Uh, women's circles, one amazing new moon circle that's actually led by Samantha um, every month. And I'm so grateful for that space. And it often makes me sad thinking that men don't have that kind of space. So mm -hmm. I'm really grateful that it's being cultivated. I mean, both of you are cultivating men's spaces in super important, important ways. So mm -hmm. thank you for that. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I often feel your encouragement on that. It's really good to have the Holy Feminine behind it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we are coming towards close. Yeah. And in this moment, I'm trying to think through, like, what are the questions that you usually ask mm. your guests at the closing? I know one of them is, is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't touched on? Yeah. Feels relevant. Yeah. I think it's, I think my work is evolving. And I am interested in doing work that, so my work right now, I'm very privileged, very blessed to have a fair amount of work that where a client, uh, a, an organizational or institutional client brings me in and then gathers people. So I'm not necessarily the convener, right? The client brings me in as a facilitator and designer and brings together the people that he wants to convene. And so they are a middle person in that. And that's a great business model. It has worked wonderfully for me over the years. And it leaves, um, it makes for a different contract with the participant. The participant didn't come necessarily because I was facilitating. They were they came because the convener convened them. And I am interested in moving more, doing more work that I convene myself, where people people somehow get resourced to to be part of of a process, transformational process, to join a particular network, um, to get better at something together, uh, and they are I'm the one convening. They're making a, a so the mastermind project is a possibility. Um, evolutionary leadership 2.0 is a possibility. <laughs> there are different there are different things I'm considering. Um, some of this kind of ceremonial work is a possibility. Um, but I find that when I have a personal contract with the participant, when the participant came because they wanted to be part of my work specifically, um, we can go farther together because the work that we need to do if we are to truly transform ourselves, if we're going to push ourselves to evolve, it's work that is going to make us supremely uncomfortable. <laughs> and that's work that is really good to consent into and sign up for. 
So that mm. right now, if a participant says to me, well, I'm really uncomfortable with da 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 and then they use some kind of um, woke language to couch that, right? Because it becomes a little bit of a weapon, right? Because if I go against it, then I'm going against some central justice of tenet, mm. some central tenet of justice. I actually feel some level of constraint in terms of what I can do as a facilitator. But if you came to work with me and and, and to be challenged in fundamental ways, um, and you say, well, you know, this is this, I really want to do that. I don't really want to say, I've heard things like, um, I don't want to say ache, or when you ring your bells, it feels like uh, you have some kind of Buddhist agenda, or, I mean, I have heard uh, somebody said, you know, it's triggering for you to take a breath. I mean, things that are actually really impossible to to work with. Uh, 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 <laughs> hmm. Or, or there could be deeper things that you say. I don't want to do those exercises. I, I can I can say to the person, if you're in a direct contact with me, um, you might be in the wrong place. You know, this that you might have signed up for the wrong thing because this is what we're doing here, and, and it and it requires pushing through what I did this particular points of resistance. Um, of course, all of it with very clear consent coming in. Um, but I want to do, I, th- I think we're living at the end of days. I think things are, the systems, I think the world that we lived, we were born into is changing in dramatic ways. And I think it demands incredible amount of courage, uh, very serious hard work, uh, and a willingness to face down demons that are going to keep showing up. And I'm more, I'm more, my, my goal and my passion is for all of my work to be held that way. Um, and so I think that's that's part of what I, what I wanted to make, to put out into the world, as you guys asked me about what I'm doing and why. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. And thank you for mentioning Evolutionary Leadership 2.0. As you know, that's like my favorite part of my work <laughs> and has been absolutely life-changing to be able to be a part of all four cohorts of Evolutionary Leadership. But 2017 is obviously your favorite cohort. No comment. No comment. <laughs> it's cool. We're making eye contact. I know the truth. <laughs> so there is a question that you often ask your... I mean, so far, all of the guests on the show have been women of color. Or gender nonconforming folk. Or gender nonconforming yeah. folk. Um, the question you ask them is not... The question that we're going to ask you. Okay. <laughs> um, but we were thinking, is there some related question that feels like it makes sense? And I don't know, Austin, we were toying with this. Does this does the question that we have seem... Okay, yeah, I like this question. Um, so if you want to just take a moment to like center yourself... What perspective or thing in your life needs to shift in order for you to feel more free? Mm. That's beautiful. I'm going to answer it two ways. The first one is what I've already shared. I think my relationship to movement fundamentalism when it is to wokeness, uh, which really, really feels like 
you know, when you're working on something in yourself, it feels like it's not moving, it's not moving, it's not moving, it's not moving, and then it suddenly moves. I think this has, this has moved in dramatic ways. And so how I relate to that and how small I can be in relationship to it, if the change that I feel in my heart is real, then get ready to see a lot of beautiful change ahead. Mm. The other one is uh, letting go, and this is a tough one, letting go of the idea that I am better than anyone else. The more I can let go of that, the more I can say, I have something to teach, I have a skill to offer, I have a gift to share, but that doesn't make me better than anyone else. The more I can get there, the more I will be able to fulfill my purpose in the world and in this lifetime. Thank you. Thank you. This has been beautiful. Mm. Super heart opening. Your laughter, wisdom, <laughs> and joy have helped me to come into contact with myself. The timing could not be more perfect. I mean, could not be more perfect. Um, deeply grateful for mm. your friendship and your support because this has been a phenomenal amount of support. Thank mm. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.